This episode of Straight Up was recorded in December 2015 and features journalists Aviva Stahl and Nita Khan in conversation with me, Jarrett Murphy, on how terror attacks abroad affect the counterterrorism efforts made at home. So here in New York City, we had hundreds of counterterrorism officers. And obviously there's a history here. I mean, Mayor Bloomberg and Ray Kelly had some pretty controversial counterterrorism intelligence programs. Under de Blasio, that supposedly has changed, and whether it's the demographics unit or the zone assessment unit, how much has it changed in communities like Bay Ridge? I mean, I think that for me, what comes to mind is just our deepest fears about the growth of ISIS, that foreign fighters would return home and attack have seemingly come true. And that for a lot of people, I think that's a scary moment. Right, because in the evolution since, I mean, obviously history didn't start uh, with 9-11 either. I mean, you pointed out in a recent piece you wrote. But the understanding uh, of it has been there was 9-11 spectacular attack, and then there was the focus on lone wolf terrorism or homegrown terrorism. And now this is of a, a, a different species. Um, and I think we're all kind of just reacting to that. Mm-hmm. And it definitely is like it's not, um, you know, it's not like what happened on 9-11. It is much more, it's much more difficult because it, at the end of the day, it's an ideology. And it's like, how do you stop an ideology? Because you can have a young kid somewhere here in the States who's not even Muslim, who's just troubled, who's disillusioned and says, hey, I need something to latch onto and latches onto this in some sort of act of rebelling or whatever crazy behavior they may be engaged in. Do you feel, I mean, you personally or all of us sort of ingesting the media, do we even understand what that ideology is? Uh, and is it different for ISIS versus al-Qaeda? I mean, when al-Qaeda came to prominence, the thing to understand was that this wasn't like Black September. This wasn't a group linked to some specific nationalist cause. This was about something in some ways more ambitious and a little more diffuse. Is, is ISIS from the same sort of school of thought? Do we, do we even have a grasp of that? I, I personally think it's pretty dangerous to say that the reason people engage in these criminal acts are because of an ideology, right? I think that there are a lot of like political contextual reasons why people are drawn to either travel to ISIS or to join the Islamic State or to return and engage in acts of violence. What do you think, what are the driving factors? Obviously the decision to go to war, right? The kind of creation of political vacuums, um, like longstanding racism and Islamophobia against young people in Europe, um, and the sense that the war on terror is a war on Islam. And I think, unfortunately, like we do such a disservice because we don't get news and information to the American public. Even before 03, we were in Iraq um, in the first Gulf War, and there were hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that were killed. And you know, and I'm in no way ever condoning or justifying any kind of violence, but I think it's important to understand how these things come to fruition and all the things that come into play, because this is what these terrorists then use to justify their actions. And they say, hey, you're killing our innocent people, and then, you know, they bring in other people and say that it is only Muslim lives that are being killed because we're in, like, I believe 14 or 15 Muslim countries, whether it's through overt war in Afghanistan, in Iraq, or it's drone warfare in Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen. I mean, we're in a host of countries, so they definitely use that. And like President Obama himself said, when people are disillusioned, they cling to religion and guns. So it's very easy to get these people who have no opportunity, no sense of hope for anything, to bring them in by using religion and say, hey, they're trying to kill us all, so we need to fight back. I guess what people in New York wonder is, you know, the concern locally is obviously always somewhat selfish, like are we a target? And 
the next question is sort of how do you defend yourself against this stuff if, if bombs don't work and if being engaged doesn't work and if being a cosmopolitan city doesn't work, well, you know, what does? But I don't think we've been engaged as we should be because I think we have been just responding with war. Like even with 9-11, we went into Iraq that had nothing to do with it. And then once we destabilized that, that's how ISIS, you know, like you said, the vacuum was created and that's how ISIS came to power, spread over into Syria. And then there hasn't been any actual engagement. It's either like we've been propping up dictators, then when we don't want them, we get rid of them. And then it's just war, bombs, and people being killed. It, it's very difficult. I'm, I, I don't know what the answer is. I wish we could like save the world in this segment, but I definitely, I know it's not, um, it's not warfare because the more you do that, the more you create more terrorists. A big part of how this is received and understood is obviously the media role. And I'm wondering, any particularly good coverage standout? Any particularly idiotic uh, examples? I think the idiotic is too long to list, sadly. I mean, there's <laughs> well, been yeah. so much. Highlights, though, yeah. highlights. How about you, anything on your hit list? I mean, I think for me, the most striking thing has been the way that um, like national security pundits and former CIA, FBI have been allowed to make claims on television and receive absolutely no pushback from from journalists. So I think the one that comes to mind is the former CIA director, James Woolsey, said that he, that Snowden, Edward Snowden, had blood on his hands and that he would prefer to see him hanged as opposed to merely electrocuted for what he'd done. Their national security representatives making claims on television that um, they're not receiving any pushback for it all. And many of those uh, talking heads are people who have been notoriously wrong before, mm -hmm. like people who sold us on the Iraq war and others, and they just seem exactly. to keep, yeah, it's like CNN only has so many pages in his Rolodex or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. For me, the, the worst story I saw of many was the one, I think it was on Breitbart, not surprisingly, <laughs> but it was about how Muslim countries aren't taking Syrian refugees, so why should we? Right. But in the fine print, it mentions that like Lebanon has more than a million, Jordan has 630,000, and they have now said we can't take any more because like, they're becoming a huge part of their population. Right, but. right. It's such a crazy dynamic because it's like Muslims are the biggest victims of terrorism, and then when something happens, they're blamed. All 1.6 billion people are blamed for the act of terrorism. It's like we're required to denounce it. I mean, I'm sorry, I have absolutely nothing to do with what some crazy people. It's like, why do I have to go out and denounce what these, you know, obviously insane folks are doing and then you don't on a regular basis you don't have enough Muslim voices in the conversation you don't have Muslims you don't have enough Muslims working in newsrooms mm -hmm. you don't have them brought in as guests and then they're only brought in when it's time to defend um, or I'm sorry not defend to denounce an act of terrorism there are other kind of media ethical issues that have come up in covering the attacks I mean when ISIS releases a video the media instinct, obviously, is to show it because it's news, but that also is exactly what ISIS wants you to do because that's, that's their tactic. So if you were a news director, would you show the threatening tape? Um, I think that there's a different question when there are like bodies on the screen, like people who have families and who might have a position on it. But I guess for me, I think the question of whether we're encouraging ISIS by showing those videos is so secondary to the broader question, which is like, what is our military policy and like, what are the ways that our approach to like, quote unquote, like countering extremism in Muslim communities? Those are such, such more central questions to like, whether we're confronting ISIS or opposing ISIS in the way we should, that I think for that to be like a central question for the media to to kind of grapple with. To me, it seems like a distraction to the broader question, right? I don't know, what do you think? 
I, I totally agree. Um, you know, and to your question, I think we we do obviously need to cover this, right? Like, this is very real. It's going on everywhere. It's happened here in New York. But I think the manner in which we cover it, the sensationalism, that is the problem. And just the fear-mongering and creating hysteria and that's But if we're not showing the up, tape, then to some degree they're not sensationalizing, right? I mean, the most sensational thing would be show the tape that shows the guys mm -hmm. filming Herald Square and Times Square and zipping up their jacket. Right. But they, they decided not right. to do that, which is interesting. Right. Which I thought, I, mean, I think that's actually a good decision not to show that. I do. Um, because that is, in a sense, and you are giving them a platform to to showcase their stuff and you're giving them publicity almost in the same way when there's like a mass shooting or a gun shooting you know if you keep saying the the shooter's name and giving them publicity that's what they want at the end of the day so you don't want to do that but it's like you want to educate and inform the public and have them be aware that this is a reality and it could happen but the constant like daily you know all day all night like this is inevitable it's gonna happen Muslims are evil boom 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 that's where I have the problem with it because it ends up sensationalizing something that you should just be educated about. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, I mean, one of the things that bothers me about, um, about the coverage of ISIS and Al-Qaeda is the difficulty in sort of separating the fact that the action is, is obviously amoral and evil to kill people, um, but trying to get down to root causes or the things that might be part of why a particular person goes from being you know, a suburban kid in, in Syria mm -hmm. to being an ISIS member. Um, has anyone in the media really kind of delved into where they come from with any kind of sensitivity or insight? I mean, I think, I don't know, I think there are like academics and writers, people like Arun Kudnani, who, who have considered questions kind of peripheral to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, for example, one question to look at is the way that like our countering violent extremism programs, in a lot of ways, the ones that are being, have been implemented for a long time in the UK and are starting to be impl implemented here, really kind of create a surveillance apparatus for like, especially kids who are talking about these issues. And I think for a lot of Muslim kids who are being exposed to these ideas and are also maybe facing Islamophobia at home or in their schools, I think it's important that they have spaces to talk about ISIS's ideology and their recruiting strategy and questions about the war on terror and is the war on terror a war on Islam, that it's really important that Muslim kids can like engage with their religious leaders and their family members in these conversations and that the if we criminalize those spaces, that really makes it more difficult for kids to explore those ideas. And is that what CVE does? Countering violent extremism. Yeah. It, it, does it create that sort of pressure or, or scrutinize those spaces? Yeah, it basically says that like schools or, I mean, it's much more in place in the UK than it is here, but it essentially says that there are certain like predictors of what will lead someone to engage in violent behavior. And in the UK, at least, that can, can include like, you know, dressing more religiously or um, like becoming depressed or right. becoming socially active, right? Right. And that, or if you engage in kinds of questions, like you ask, you say that homosexuality is a sin or you like make certain sort of statements about jihad, right? And that teachers should be on the lookout or health professionals for these kids who are becoming vulnerable to terrorism. But I think we need to be really careful with stuff like that because if somebody, you know, let's say they just want to be more religious themselves, they choose to pray more or they go to the mosque more, they shouldn't be quote unquote red flagged. And there's been, you know, so much of that that happened here um, post 9-11. Like we've had so much surveillance of Muslim communities. We have the demographics unit, which was supposedly dissolved. But, um, you know, the, the Muslim community always does feel very, you know, stigmatized and feels like they're always constantly being surveilled and, 
you know, we have a running joke in my family, like, you know, if we're on the phone and somebody says something and we're like, oh, make sure, you know, whoever's listening jotted that down correctly, because we always have this thing like, oh, yeah, there's somebody listening on the other end, you know, and as we learned through Snowden and NSA, um, that that is very well true. Let's talk about that local angle. So obviously, Mayor Bloomberg and Commissioner Kelly came under a lot of criticism for their approach to you know, policing terrorism. You know, the demographics unit, which I think was renamed the zone forgot, assessment yeah, right, the unit, zone assessment, right, and right. then was shut down by de Blasio was one thing. There was the scrutinizing of political protests before the RNC in 2004. Mm -hmm. So there was the sense that things had changed when de Blasio became mayor. Um, how accurate is that sense? I know you've done some reporting about this infiltration of student groups that suggests that not right. much changed. Yeah, I mean, the story I wrote focused on one undercover NYPD detective who began spying on Muslim students at Brooklyn College before de Blasio was elected and continued well through past his, his term in office after he was sworn into office. I mean, I think another thing, in the demographics unit, as far as I understand, they never had undercover cops like infiltrating Muslim communities. Obviously, they like mapped communities, which is like a horrible thing in and of itself, I think, but they weren't infiltrating communities. And there's been, even when Bratton talks about the dismantling of the demographics unit, he, if you look at what he says, he's basically like, oh, like there were like three guys working in there, like we weren't even doing anything. Right. Like we, <laughs> right. it wasn't even that right. useful anymore. Right, they, they created like a good guy to like the best restaurants in town, but that was right. about it. Right. Yeah, like I, all, the, all of their powers had been basically already folded into other units. So I think, I mean, for me, the story that I wrote really was a reason it was important was to track the continuities between Kelly and what's happening now in that, you know, Muslims, oh, many Muslims still believe that things haven't changed. Right, because you live in Bay Ridge where there was a tremendous amount of uh, informants and infiltration of yeah, mosques definitely. and others. Has the feeling there, I got the sense five years ago, that people felt like they were being watched and mm -hmm. they couldn't trust their neighbors. Has that abated at all? I mean, I'm sure it depends who you ask, but I think for the people I've spoken to, I don't think that feeling has changed. Um, and I don't think that, de I think de Blasio spoke a lot about the importance of shutting down the demographics unit, but it doesn't seem to me that his administration has done much to assuage community fears that undercover spying or surveillance has truly ended. So in, in full disclosure, I had a brief stint where I worked as a speechwriter in the de Blasio administration very briefly. Um, I crossed over to the dark side, yes, into politics, and then I was like, you know what, this is not for me. I need to come back to uh, the journalism side. So I, was, um, I wasn't in these high-level meetings, obviously. I was a speechwriter, but that being said, I totally agree with you. I feel like, you know, certain verbiage and language and names may be changed or programs may be supposedly eliminated, but at the end of the day, they're just folded into other things and still continuing. And then with de Blasio, what I also noticed, um, the lawsuit that um, some folks had filed against NYPD, you know, he basically held the same line as Bloomberg, mm -hmm. where he never denounced their actions. He just basically pushed back against this lawsuit. So it's like, what really truly has changed? You know, you might change the name of something, but actual policy is still pretty much the same. Right, he's still defending the position Bloomberg had. And de Blasio himself was all over the map before being elected on the question of the surveillance mm -hmm. program. He mm -hmm. was for it, then he was against it, then he was. Yeah. So he's been, and, and I think the local conversation 
mirrors the national one. Mere hours after the attacks, John Brennan, the national security advisor, said that this was a repudiation of the kind of post-Snowden reforms. It's interesting you pointed out because I also noticed with um, Judith Miller, she also tweeted something that very same day. To, you know, we know Judith Miller, New right. York Times, helping to sell us of the, the Iraq tombs. war that got us into this mess that actually destabilized um, the region created ISIS, and she tweeted something to the effect of, you know, maybe now the students that have been protesting on campuses have something else, can stop whining about safe spaces and can mm. talk about something else. And I'm like, wow, the audacity to tweet something like that is just amazing, you know. People's reactions have just been all over the place, and I think very, like, irresponsible and, and just too much hysteria across the board. And the crazy thing is that the reforms that Brennan is criticizing were remarkably modest. Mm. I mean, they still can do a lot of stuff. They just, there is some bulk collection of data that they are prohibited from doing mm -hmm. based on this USA Freedom Act, right? I mean, he's complaining about a, a, a very, very modest sort of rolling back of his powers. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think also the notion that people who are, who've decided to engage in acts of terrorism, the notion that in, in any context they would believe that they weren't under surveillance of some kind and that Sidon's revelations somehow changed their entire, the entire landscape of like the kinds of policing or surveillance they believe they were under is just like, it's just a ludicrous idea, right? Sidon's revelations were important because like vast majority of Americans realized that they could potentially be under surveillance. That's something that Muslims have thought about have known about for a long time, mm -hmm. and certainly people actively engaged in acts of terrorism have, I presume they've always known that they were being spied on. And I know you, you, you're working on some stories about Islamophobia, right? Yeah, I mean, it's something I think a lot about a lot, but I think another thing that's important to recognize is the ways that, you know, Islamophobia and the militarization of the NYPD is also affecting other like all communities of color in New York, right? So I think one thing that they talked about a lot was how the NYPD has increased the militarization or like the weaponization of their units, mm -hmm. kind of anticipating that there were these be kind of multi-pronged attacked on cities. Mm -hmm. And that they've, was it the strategic, strategic, Response group. Mm -hmm. Do you remember if that was the name? Uh, that sounds like the, the kind name. of name they would think, have for yeah, something like right? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think they said they've tripled the amount of officers who are carrying mm -hmm. semi-automatic weapons, mm -hmm. right, just in their cars. And so I was following the coverage from the anniversary of Tamir Rice's killing. You know, this kid in Ohio who was killed by a cop. And there were NYPD cops with semi-automatic weapons strapped around themselves at the Barclays Center. Mm -hmm. Just with protesters there. Yeah. So I think that's all, you know, it's also really important for us to think about the ways that the war on terror and the militarization of the police is affecting, like, you know, movements against police brutality in all forms, right? And, and also, I think um, some selectivity in what we declare to be acts of terrorism or not, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Absolutely. the NYPD this weekend had an active shooter. Uh, drill. Mm -hmm. And on their website is an, a, a very extensive report looking at other mass shootings in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And almost none of them have anything to do with, you know, um, Islamofascism or whatever right. we're calling this brand of terrorism. Right. Um, you know, it's things like the guy in the Charleston church, people mm -hmm. shooting up an IRS office. Mm -hmm. So we seem to have a very, mm -hmm. terrorism is equivalent to mu right. Muslim terrorism right. or Islamic Definitely. terrorism. 
um, and not other kinds. And right. that's, I think, part of the problem. Right, because as an American, you're more likely to be killed by one of those, like a mass shooting in a theater or something like that, as opposed to an act of terrorism. But once again, it goes, bound, goes back to verbiage, goes back to coverage, goes back to who's in newsrooms, who's not in there, who's creating this language, and who's constantly juxtaposing terrorism with Islam. And it's, you know, when you're putting that out on a daily basis, it's no surprise that most Americans, the first thing they think of when they hear Islam or Muslims is terrorism. It's like they're never humanized as the victims of terrorism when they are, in fact, the biggest victims of terrorism, but they're only presented as the perpetrators of acts of terror. And it's very sad. It's very unfortunate. And that's why hate crimes are up um, against Muslims. The, I believe it was last week that the FBI released um, their annual report. So while hate crimes are down overall, they're up against um, Muslims against the Muslim community, mm. and you've had personal experience with Islamophobia. Oh yeah, what, absolutely. What was that like? I mean, I've had um, overt things where I was like driving one time on the Queensboro Bridge, and somebody we sort of like got into like a little you know road rage incident, and some guy yelled and was like, "Oh, you're probably a terrorist. Who cares?" you know, call me like an Indian, you know, I guess we're not allowed to curse, but Indian B and then something else. Um, you know, so there's been small things like that. And then there's or been larger things too, which are much more subliminal, but just as dangerous. Um, if we really want to get personal, my father was coming out of a grocery store in 2005 in New Jersey in a somewhat conservative racist town. He came out of the store and he was hit by a car. Um, he flew and hit the back of his head on the ground and had massive trauma, hemorrhaging, and basically lost his ability to speak. And when the EMT and the police arrived on the scene, they basically just took one look at him and said, oh, he can't speak English, and put a language barrier in their report and sent him to a non-trauma hospital. And he didn't get transferred to a trauma facility until five hours later. And by that time, he fell into a coma, and he died three days later. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where, like, could I ever prove in a court of law that they looked at his ID and were like, oh, who cares? He's probably a terrorist. Let's just throw him wherever. Of course, I can't prove somebody's ingrained bias and racism in court. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not stupid. I know what kind of climate has been created. And that's why I always try to push back against this, because there are real-life consequences that people don't realize. You know, it's not always necessarily somebody shooting and attacking someone. It's these smaller things, too, that play out in very real ways and can have an impact right. in, um, in people's lives. And I think your, that horrible story is an example of how, the, you know, it doesn't, even mm -hmm. if that was not particularly the case there, the mere fact that you have to have that worry is an indication of, you know, the effect of Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happened after the attack, um, and it's not, this is not the first time it's happened, obviously, a lot of social media activism, mm. obviously, hashtag activism, and mm. the fad of changing one's profile picture to the French tricolor, which I'll admit I did, and a lot of other people did, including you know, some pretty right-wing talk show hosts, mm -hmm. was criticized after the fact because obviously a couple weeks earlier was the Beirut thing, you know, several hundred Russian people died and it was apparently an ISIS attack, so it was viewed as a rather selective response to this. Um, it, in terms of understanding the attack like, and the response to it, how big is social media? And how much of that is a real indication of how people feel about things? I think social media is very instrumental and very powerful in that regard because for a long time so many people, especially communities of color, marginalized communities, 
feel like as if they do not have a voice and do not have representation in the mainstream. So this has been a tremendous tool that they push back. And they did things like, you know, the Beirut attack happened right before this. And nobody cared. Why aren't we getting as much coverage? Do our lives not matter? And then, you know, it goes back to the same thing with, like, Black Lives Matter. Like, these things start on social media because it's finally an avenue by which people who may not have always had a voice get to have that opportunity to have a voice and push back against some of this stuff. What about the concern that always attends anything, particularly on Twitter, which is that these issues are rather complex, one might say. Um, you know, going back to like the Sykes-Picot agreement and everything since then, can you really deal with this stuff in 140 characters at a time? Is that a legitimate way to approach any of these issues? I think it's a, a way to uh, start the conversation or to change the conversation, whatever the situation is, and then delve into it like through another avenue deeper or whatever. I think it's a good way because obviously you can't you know, save the world or resolve some sort of crises in 140 characters, but it's an initial place to start any kind of dialogue and then take it from there to whatever else. But you put the French flag on your Facebook profile. I did. I so did. what Briefly. was your kind of... Uh, I think because I, I really felt like I, was, I could have been one of those people who were a victim. And that's different. I've never, Beirut is an amazing city, and my wife wants to go there, and we will someday, but I've never been. Mm-hmm. But we got engaged in Paris, and, you know, I love Eagles of Death Metal. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt a certain... It, it was... The tricolor was a granted crude and simpler way to signify mm-hmm. that I felt a, a true kinship with the victims. But I've really happened before. Mm-hmm. Like more so even than, you know, like September 11th, obviously those were New Yorkers, but um, I didn't know anybody who works in the World Trade Center, so I didn't feel that quite mm-hmm. as personally. As and there was no Twitter back then, really. That's true, yeah. which is hard to think yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's interesting that kinship is expressed as a kind of support for a nation state, right? That that's like right. the way it's translated. Right. Well, on that note. In the water. <laughs> The Straight Up Podcast is produced by Megan Donis, Shrianka Ray, and Sasha Mathias, and is recorded on location at Bedford Hall in Brooklyn. For more information, visit brickartsmedia.org. 